0: Hi, I am Chitra, I am Madhavi, I am Jyoti, I am Patmaja, together we are your hosts on The Edge Podcast. We bring you stories and experiences from our experiments around learning, marketing and design. These are stories of people, technology and people interacting through technology of what we see, create and recommend.
1: Cradle to Cradle Did you picture a neonatal unit with nurses moving around, busily? Wrong! The Cradle to Cradle concept is about ensuring that no item is wasted. When an item reaches its end of life in one form, it is given a new lease of life in a different form. This is the basis of a circular economy. Sushmita is a designer with a multidisciplinary approach to her work. How work lies at the intersection of creative problem-solving, technology, and envisioning a sustainable, present, and future. This is a freewheeling conversation about industrial design, circular economy, sustainability, game design with recycled materials, and designing for water equity. Over to the humans now.
0: Hello everybody, welcome to this episode of The Edge Podcast. Today we have with us a very interesting guest. Sushmita, who's going to teach us a lot about design and sustainability. I really look forward to this conversation with her. Sushmita, welcome. Thank you. Let's get started with your origin story. How did you get into the world of design?
1: Wow, you make me sound like
0: a superhero. Yes! (laughs) I do think designers are superheroes. Okay,
1: (laughs) hope we can live up to that. I think I was somebody who was always interested in both arts as well as science and I just enjoyed understanding how the world works from a very young age. Ultimately that choice had to be made when I was like in in the 11th grade where I had to choose between arts and science. I did not want to choose so I ended up taking the group which had science and math and biology. Eventually I used those two years to figure out what I wanted to do and design seemed to be an option which kind of uh, meant I didn't have to give up on any of these things but instead see how they all work together to create products, experiences and beyond. That's how I ended up choosing design.
0: Can you tell us a little bit about what courses you did, what are your qualifications before you got into the professional world of design?
1: I actually did an undergrad at Shishti, Institute of Art, Design and Technology. I graduated as a product and interface designer and that included an aspect of industrial design but also an aspect of UX design, which was just about picking up at that time. During the course of my education, I got very interested in sustainability. One of my mentors at college made me read this book called Cradle to Cradle, which talked about transitioning from a linear economy that is Like you extract something, you make something and then you break it and then it goes to the landfill. So transitioning from that to a circular economy where you design something from scratch to go from cradle to cradle. That is, it perpetually lives in different forms maybe, but it doesn't get disposed. There's no idea of waste or disposal. And while this is very idealistic, I think That's where my whole journey into sustainability started.
0: What does cradle-to-cradle mean? What is the cradle here? It's
1: like a metaphor for birth. When we say cradle-to-cradle, we mean that when something is born, it doesn't die, or if it dies, it's back where it started. That is, back at the cradle, it has a new life. There's no concept of something becoming useless or obsolete, or even if it's not relevant in its current state, can it be renewed and made into something that is relevant?
0: In a different form. Yes. That's a new thing that I learned today. Yeah. When we spoke earlier, Sushmita, you said you had found your ikikai in industrial design and the circular economy. Can you talk a little bit more about this? What do you do? How do you achieve a circular economy?
1: The circular economy is again based on the whole principle of cradle to cradle. So the circular economy is looking at the kind of economic aspects of how that cradle to cradle functions, right? You have to change entire systems in order to enable that whole economy. So as an industrial designer, it's no longer about designing a single product. It's about zooming out, looking at the entire system in which you design the product and in which the product lives, uh, it's used, it dies, and of course looking at even the production aspects of it, how is it packaged, how is it delivered, you're looking at products as a service to people and you're no longer looking at the product in isolation. So that's where industrial design meets the circular economy. The way things are going, there are many strategies that you can use, but In the past, we did have a robust, I would argue, circular economy in this country where we would repair things perpetually, we would rent things, we would look at products as services, but then at some point it became about owning these products and the pride in product ownership. So then this whole idea of like owning the latest phone or owning the latest fashion piece or even like interiors, that became the focus for the consumer. Then those repair and the service economy kind of started to die a slow death. But I think now with a renewed interest in the circular economy, and now that people have actually like created theories around this and they're able to explain it, there's like a renewed interest both uh, with consumers as well as with companies that are seeing the benefits of a circular economy. I think as an industrial designer, it's an important thing to look at what systems are available and what service economies are available regionally and design for that, keeping those constraints in mind as well as those possibilities.
0: Is it possible for you to share some of the projects you're working at Good Business Lab?
1: Good Business Lab is not directly related to this. At my current job at Good Business Lab, The focus is not on just environmental sustainability. The focus is more on social sustainability. Good Business Lab itself is focused on the well-being of blue collar workers and designing interventions for the same. My role in the design team at Good Business Lab is again looking at the entire system within which the blue collar workers in a certain sector, for example, in a factory would operate looking at the possible design intervention, whether be it like in the mental health space or whether it's in the physical health space, safety. So looking at all these various aspects and looking at how interventions can be offered as services to these workers and not just mindlessly dumped as like acts of charity, but more like looking at it from a whole service design perspective where the worker is the center of your design it's user-centric design with the worker at the center at the same time we also try to look at how businesses and other stakeholders in this blue-collar economy can be incentivized to prioritize the worker at the center of the intervention and help them see that there are business returns in investing in such interventions.
0: Do you go in and work with other companies as consultants to help them improve uh, their service? Good Business Lab
1: is a non-profit. We call ourselves a labor innovation firm or lab. We do work directly with corporates. Those could either be large factories or like in the manufacturing sector. We're also looking at things like gig economy and construction and all of that trying to get those corporates to invest in programs that can then be, you know, scaled up. This is not in my area of expertise, but a large part of what a good business lab does is quantitative research. They conduct these randomized control trials on like large sample sizes of workers to ensure that they can first prove the success of interventions. That is like that workers are truly happy receiving these interventions that it's truly effective and it's actually making an impact before they scale it up. And then the results are then shared in order to bring in more corporates into the fold so that they also can invest in the well-being of their workers.
0: There's a lot of focus on ESG initiatives nowadays, right? Even uh, in the investment world, they are focusing on making more investments in the ESG sector. The government has brought in a lot of norms how does this impact any of the work that you do does it at all yeah for sure the fact that there are all these norms
1: actually helps us opens up doors for people in the sustainability space because it's not an area where you would see long term business returns and it's very difficult to convince people to invest in something that where you don't immediately see returns and something like environment easy to do something small and then greenwash it, but then real change takes time, it takes strategy, it takes innovation. You know, prioritizing it and setting aside that time to work on it. It's a challenge to find clients who want to engage with that. I was just discussing this with an acquaintance yesterday who is also in the space. But change at the policy level is one of the best driving factors for pushing people to invest in sustainable initiatives. As a designer, I am happy (laughs) that I get to work on more such projects, for sure. There is the flip side of greenwashing. Sustainability should ideally, we'd like to think that it should be something that comes from the heart and makes you feel good and there's that whole warm glow feeling, but that's not always the case. And sometimes in cases like the climate emergency, you kind of do need to buckle down and say that these steps need to be taken. And I think the government is in a good place to do that.
0: Sushmita, a lot of times people choose the less expensive alternative. right? Whether it be the individual consumer or if you're running a small business, then your finances are limited. Is it always true that sustainable alternatives are more expensive or is this just a perception or is it just the lack of knowledge or is it a lack of alternatives available in the market? What do you think is the major hurdle for people to move to a more sustainable ways of working or doing business? I think you've just opened a can of tofu shrimp. <laughs> I should probably
1: just say can of worms. you like shrimp? I think tofu and shrimp sound good together. Yeah so the answer is yes. It is more expensive, but it's not always going to be more expensive. It's an economy of scale. So when businesses venture out to, you know, make sustainable alternatives and actually compete with something that's existed for the past two decades, it's a big task for them to win consumers over to their side. It needs investment. They need people to cheer them on, they need people to invest in them, and they need really good branding. It's becoming easier to kind of get the whole Gen Z and millennials who are in the more corporate, white-collar jobs on board, though there might be a price difference. It's something that we're all aware of and we're willing to, if there are ready solutions available, we are willing to spend a few extra rupees on that. But for those who say that if it's not affordable for you, you can make things from scratch, like you can make your own shampoo or you can make your own toothpaste, which is, you know, low carbon and you don't have to use packaging. It takes a lot of effort to do all that. So as a lower middle class blue collar worker, do I have the time to go around collecting limes and then, you know, go around finding package free options? and then putting together my own toothpaste. I don't think so. I think that's where the challenge is, and we kind of take it for granted that just because we live in a certain social strata, and this is cheap for us, or we have some extra time on our hands, that everybody would have that extra time on our hands. It's definitely about taking the solutions that are there, scaling it up so that people of different social strata will be able to afford it. That needs investment. One of my friends was telling me recently about Shark Tank. She's been telling me about a lot of local businesses that are focused on creating sustainable alternatives, getting funded on Shark Tank. That's a very good sign that things can be scaled up and there is value in investing in green, genuinely green businesses so yes i think definitely economy of scale the other thing is about localizing and decentralizing production and distribution designing for distributed manufacturing this whole idea of hyperlocal production and consumption all of that can you know encourage hyperlocal businesses like your local kirana shop and reduce the need for things like packaging reduce your carbon footprint and all of that. Just developing a robust local economy can actually uh, encourage local businesses, bring back uh, the Kirana shops. That can
0: again make it more affordable for people of all classes. Recently on Shark Tank, there was this brand called Flathead that came and pitched to them. And the founder was kind of desperate at that point because he had put in all of his own funds and the company wasn't doing so well at the point when the episode was shot. But once the episode was aired, everybody got to know about his sustainable plan and that he's using banana fibers in his footwear and whatnot. And now I think there's a renewed demand. Within two days, within 48 hours of this episode airing, they sold their entire stock. Their website will say everything is sold out. And now then he came up with this whole concept of some 900 pairs of this unique brand of footwear, just 900 one-time kind of a thing. I think he got 900 orders in about three days or so. That is what Shark Tank is doing, not just making entrepreneurship cool again in India, but also throwing light on brands which are doing this, where the cost factor, they can't compete with the mass scale factory production. But environmentally, it's a lot more sustainable. And like you said, it's mostly Gen Z and millennials who are going for this. But I do also find that a little ironical because I think our parents in the Gen X or the boomer generation, they had a lot more sustainable kind of lifestyle overall Yeah. back in India. The consumerism started more with millennials. But now right. we're saying the millennials are also the ones who are looking for the sustainable alternatives. Yeah, As millennials, we're always looking for the easy way
1: out because we're so set in a lifestyle where you go to work, you come back from work and then you probably go hang out with your friends. Maybe you go to work out or something. When you go about your day, you're kind of moving from one part of your day to the other and you don't really have time to stop and think and and we're used to that kind of fast-paced lifestyle. That makes it very hard again for us to go back to doing things the way our parents or grandparents used to. When you're a working person, you have limited time and then you prioritize what you need to do to climb the corporate ladder. In that sense, it's not gonna be easy to win people over to the side of doing things more sustainably unless you give them some ready-made solutions. In some sense, I guess millennials are the ready-made generation because We're the first generation that started buying ready-made clothes because we didn't have the
0: patience to go look for a tailor. The ready-made generation. That's the first time I heard that. I think you're right. I like that. The ready-made generation. (laughs) That reminds me of something that I've seen nowadays, which was not the case when I was growing up. There are fewer people who are ready to repair. First thing, items in the market are meant to be disposed of use and throw kinds and that's not just limited to the single-use straws or anything but there are hardly anybody who will repair all they'll say is let's just replace it because some part is not available you have a really old car oh that model is no longer manufactured I think you should get a new car that's the general trend and if you have a piece of clothing they'll just be like there's no tailor to do it and we don't have the skills to do it ourselves so what do you do recently I watched Pathan and in Pathan, Shah Rukh Khan says his latest hobby is something called Kintsugi. Hmm. I am hoping I said that correctly. It's I the think. Japanese art of restoring things using gold. Right. explanation given there was that the old thing becomes more valuable as time passes. Now, I don't know if it's just a Bollywood dialogue or not, but I do agree with the philosophy of restoring things. What are your thoughts on that? I know you wrote a blog about it too.
1: Oh, Yeah. <laughs> I agree. If you're using gold to fix something, then yes, in terms of financial value, definitely it's a literal thing. But I think also if you take the time and effort to repair something, it shows how much you value it deep inside. You're actually taking the effort. So it's not about how much it costs anymore. It's about what value that is added to your life, if it's a pair of jeans. What are the experiences you've had in that pair of jeans? What adventures are you looking forward to having in those pair of jeans? So that's where the value lies. And the fact that you're taking the time out to go and fix that pair of jeans shows that it has great inherent value. That is when it comes to regular everyday objects. And then of course, there are things like, you know, vintage furniture, which, Not everyone is into this, so we're not aware, but it's a rich people hobby in some sense to collect old pieces of furniture and spend a lot of money restoring it. But then that's because, again, there's the sense of nostalgia or the sense of ownership of owning that thing and owning the history behind that object. Definitely, there's nostalgic value, there's functional value in repairing things. So if repair is to kind of catch on again, I think it should become more affordable. Like you said, right now it's becoming harder and harder to find people who will repair things. And that I think has been also a very conscious strategy of the corporates for a very long time. So it's called planned obsolescence, where they design something a little different than its predecessor so that When the previous technology dies, or it has a problem, instead of repairing it, you're forced to kind of upgrade to the next one because they stop making parts for it. To some extent, it's also consumer driven because we want the latest technology, we want the latest updates and all of that. It doesn't seem to make financial sense for these factories to keep producing the older parts. But I think there are a few organizations that are working towards a more equitable model where they are designing things to be upgraded at least for as long as possible and giving people the option to repair things. For example, you have a laptop that's an Apple laptop. There are things that are covered by the insurance and things that are not. After a point, they'll say, you have to just upgrade it. But they'll take back your old laptop. Why? Because they see value in your old laptop, but... They also want to sell you something new. Exactly. And I found some local repair shops with great difficulty, but they had the parts. They were able to fix it. It uh, saved me a lot of money and a lot of time. Yeah, I think, again, it's about spending some time to go looking for these shops, and I think that cannot be put on the consumer. Systems need to be designed and... Again, at a policy level, if these corporations are incentivized to take back and repair things rather than keep dumping new things on the consumer, then I think that can actually bring about change. I think
0: we should ask Narendra Modi to talk about this in the next month. Ki baat. Do you have a direct line to Narendra Modi? Oh, we should try it. <laughs> <laughs> so let's move on to some fun things. Sushmita, so you have been an entrepreneur. And your design firm was called Vritta. Yeah, I checked out your Instagram feed and you have a wonderful feed. Oh, thank you. I loved one aspect. You designed an Icelandic game. Can you talk about that? Yeah, sure. We actually worked with
1: this wonderful local game business in Bangalore called Kavde Toy Hive. They take ancient games mostly Indian games and then they reinvent it and they create awareness, they organize play sessions and they also sell these games. The founder reached out to us, that is me and my co-founder Namrata to recreate this Icelandic ancient game called Nefertafel. Yeah, Nefertafel Nefertafel. It's also called tafel for short. Okay. Because we were working with sustainable materials away, so exploring materials that were made out of reconstituted tetra packs to be specific she wanted to explore using that material in something ancient it's a present day problem we have like all this plastic and garbage which have been kind of made into these boards which we're then using to produce a game which is ancient that was the fun notion of doing that and uh, making this very modern minimally designed on this board and then getting people to come in and play it and own something like this which has like the future and the past in a single board. And it's a strategy game, right? It's a strategy game. Did you
0: learn to play it? Uh, At a very basic level. It's a little bit like chess. I have used a lot of Kavade products. I know, I've visited the store, it's fantastic. I love what they're doing, reviving all our ancient games. I typically tend to gift all my US friends, stuff from Kavade, all the people who love the board games and stuff, they have never played anything like a Pagade or Mm. a Chaukabara. I'm surprised at how many people today don't know about Chaukabara, which is something that we thought was so commonplace, something we grew up as kids playing so much so that we are like, I don't want to ever play that again. (laughs) But now we're no longer kids, obviously. So (laughs) now there's a renewed interest in this.
1: Maybe you should try Tafel. <laughs> yeah, I'm and, definitely um, going to. I would
0: love to hear feedback from people who enjoy playing games. There's a whole new push towards Indian games, right. Indian board games, Indian strategy games. And I love the whole design and the aesthetic that they bring out of it. It's not just this handicrafts art with a bad finish or anything. It's like really well-made world-class stuff that's coming out. So I'm super excited by that whole thing.
1: Yeah, I really like how some of Kavade's products are just Pieces of art that you can display on on your coffee table.
0: Yeah, yeah. I also know about this other game maker. One of the games she has made is called Humpy. Okay. And the way it's been designed is awesome. It's a little bit similar to Katan, but all the concepts and the things that happen, the actions, they're also Indian and they're so relatable. A little bit of strategy, a little bit of luck, and the way the whole packaging comes—it's like. Minimalistic package, nothing excess. I love the whole design that they have used too. So, I really like that you have designed this game. I will check out more about it. Talking about Nordic games and all of that, what is your thought about Nordic design? The Swedish minimalistic design. I told you I spent significant amount of time in Sweden. Okay. So I've seen that it's a very common thing. But then there are also people who love the bold colors and things like we do which is part of our traditional culture. You see it on the saris. you see it on all our handicrafts. Where is your design aesthetic here?
1: So I think I go through various phases. I'm very much into having a very minimalistic style, like more like a blank canvas. And that doesn't mean that everything has to be white, but basically neutrals. And then you can kind of change things up. You can add art, you can add textiles and... So that pop of colour can come through that. And that also makes things, you know, in terms of style, last for a very long time. Because if you want to reupholster your furniture, like say 10 years down the line, your carbon footprint is much lower than getting a new couch. If you buy one that can last a lot longer, so maybe made of solid wood or something, and then you can change certain components to suit both functionality as well as the fashion or the lifestyle at, at that
0: given time like you know fast fashion is there what do you think of the ikea products because in the u.s ikea products are something that you have the cheap stuff that's there right. cheap functional they're not the aesthetic ones but i lived in the u.s for a significant amount of time and i was quite happy with my ikea furniture ikea is huge and it has
1: good stuff and it has not so useful stuff and then it has stuff that can actually change your life and I think in India it's been received really well. One of the things I was a bit concerned about when IKEA was coming to India is are they going to kill the local furniture market because everyone's going to want to buy everything from IKEA because their products are so cheap but I've actually been seeing a lot of people buy products from IKEA very strategically or also be inspired by the way IKEA curates their things. Interestingly, the whole approach has not been go to IKEA and fill your house with IKEA stuff, but try to see which elements kind of fit into an Indian lifestyle. For example, organizational strategies. We have Indian clothes and Western clothes, and then our storage uh, needs are also different. So I think just thinking about what you need and then going to and ikea and purchasing that it really helps you function functionality is the aspect about ikea that i think could add the max value to our lifestyle yeah there are some products which are quirky or funky or like you know they're not going to last forever obviously so if you do want that one statement piece from ikea and you think it brings you joy then i would say go get it but i think going to IKEA and loading up your trolley is not the best. It can actually end up costing you a lot more than you
0: would expect. So I want to come back to the design world and what is the state of the design world today. I work a lot with people who are trying to restart their careers after a career gap and a lot of them come and ask me what are the other different careers that I can explore. How easy or difficult is it to get into the design world? What skills would they have to develop to call themselves a designer and apply for designer positions? So I think design is something that requires
1: continuous learning. I learn new things on a daily basis. I'm en- enrolled in three, four different courses on the side, which I try to keep up with. I think it's similar in the tech field as well. It's no longer that you graduate from college and then you stop learning and then you just work anymore. In that sense, it's I think it holds true for everybody But also, like, we're at a time when we have so many resources that were not available to us earlier, whether in terms of online courses or even an Instagram post or even something like Pinterest. And that is not to say that that's where your education should be, but that's where you can start or you can start thinking about what you want to do or you can get ideas about what you want to do. That, again, doesn't mean that you just imitate and just you know copy mindlessly but then that can be a starting point for oh I I might want to go in that direction at some point. When trying to choose where you want to be in the design world like after a career gap or something there are a lot of platforms that you can explore and you can see examples of various fields and their outcomes and then that can help you decide where in the design world you want to be. And then from there on, you can take courses. There are so many courses available on so many platforms. Or you can go back to college. A lot of institutes are now offering online classes or a hybrid model. I myself did an industrial design kind of upskilling program called Offsite last year. When I studied design, I graduated in 2014, which was a while back. And since then, there have been a lot of developments in the industry in order to keep up with that and, you know, revisit which skills I need to fine-tune. I uh, did a course called Offsite, which um, actually the instructors are based in the US and it required me to stay up at 2am. and But the classes were super engaging and it, it was so good to have an international cohort of classmates and we had assignments and all of that, so that was a really good experience. That's, again, one way I definitely recommend learning through these three-month courses or boot camps that
0: are offered in various different design fields. Are there any conferences, any meetups that you typically go to or anything you would advise budding designers to go to to just get a sense of what's happening in the world out there?
1: Yeah, I would say definitely look at the different conferences and try to understand what aligns with your field or your interests i haven't really attended a lot of conferences before that but i attended the fab fest which is organized by fab labs and fab foundation they encourage everybody to get into this whole culture of making they want to kind of focus on inclusive design now they're also focused on distributed design using local knowledge and combining that with technology or bringing people together to innovate solutions to various problems. What I attended was called the Fab Island Challenge, and that happened in Bali, Indonesia last year. (laughs) Nice! Yeah. It was an amazing location, obviously, but I think for me the best value was the people I met. The challenge was based on sustainable development, so that was the theme, and to me it was random, but I'm sure the organizers really did this very mindfully after going through all our CVs and all our statements. So I was put into a group that worked on the water crisis Mm -hmm. in Bali. Being a tourist island, the locals were having a water shortage. So how do we look at redistributing and creating awareness and access for local people and holding people who consume a lot of water accountable? Obviously, there are many lenses to this. There's the design lens, there's there's the data lens, there's the political lens. So having sort of interdisciplinary bunch of people to work on definitely taught me a lot in
0: solving that challenge. That's fantastic. I'm really happy to hear about the project that you did on the water crisis because recently also Sonam Wangchuk was on this climate fast. For five days he was doing this fast and just to draw attention to how the climate is being impacted by the ways of people who are mostly the city dwellers because he says the water consumption that happens in a place like Ladakh where he's staying is almost 10 or 15 times less than what the average city dweller uses on a daily basis right. water crisis is a huge thing and it's fantastic to see that this is something that everybody's tackling
1: yeah it's a uh, water equity at the end of the day yes because there is water it's just that it's been unfairly distributed or You know, some people are consuming more of it. So how do you design accountability and awareness into that whole system is something
0: uh, that needs to be looked at. I hope we have some solutions in the marketplace for everybody to use. I don't know how much water I'm consuming. So at least if it starts becoming more measurable, then we can put more attention to it. The main components of the
1: solution that we designed was to have a water sensor that could be installed in your borewells. This is an open source project, so all the components should be locally available or you know something similar should be available in the market in almost every country. And then there are instructions on how to build it yourself. I hope you're able to improve on this design and I hope that more people try it and then improve on that. That's the whole idea of making something open source because if we need to solve these problems, we need to share knowledge about
0: certain technology. I hope to see that around here too. What is your advice for budding designers? What are some of the mistakes you did that you wouldn't want them to do? I can start by talking about the mistakes. We have an
1: instinct deep down that this is where we want to be. And I was somebody who was always interested in sustainability. But then I try to sort of not prioritize that while learning and I try to keep an open mind to learning about everything, which is good. But I think if I had aligned that with my whole interest in sustainability early on, I think I would have been able to get ahead. So now there is this feeling that I could have spent more time working on the kind of projects that I wanted to work on. So follow your heart. (laughs) Even if you do need a good corporate job fresh out of college, don't lose sight of the fact that you're passionate about something and keep working on it on the side.
0: What are you working on
1: now? What's getting you excited? Quite a few things. Having worked on a lot of things last year and last year being quite crazy, I'm looking at seeing the next phase of certain projects unfold. One of the things that came out of my off-site course was an international collective of, you know, alumni. We're working specifically on social and sustainable design projects in the industrial design space. That is something I'm excited about. The other thing I'm excited about is we did receive some funding for the water sensor that came out of the Fab Island Challenge. So looking forward to seeing where that goes and designing the rest of the whole system and... Testing it out. I've also for a long time had a personal interest in uh, circular economy for coffee. That's a project that I've been doing a bunch of research on now and kind of a self-initiated thing. But yeah, I hope to get somewhere with that this year.
0: Awesome. First of all, congratulations
1: on getting funded. Thank you. I think it was pretty well-deserved and I hope that it really has an impact for the foundation that we're working with.
0: And also, all the best for your coffee project. Oh, thank you. Sushmita, you have also run your own podcast.
1: Yeah, my co-host Angie and I, we started this podcast in 2018 when podcasting wasn't that out there. We've been on a break for a while, but...
0: So I'll add a link to your podcast into our show notes. So listeners, you can go take a look at Sushmita's podcast as well. So that brings me to my last question to you. How does it feel to be on the other side where you are no longer interviewing? You are the interviewee now.
1: I was quite nervous and scared coming in and being on the other side and hoping that there's no bad karma associated with <laughs> <laughs> my you know, interviewing on the other side. But yeah, I think uh, we're good in that department.
0: No bad karma?
1: I don't think so.
0: Yeah, thank you. <laughs> subscribe to the Edge podcast on your favorite podcast channel. We are on Google, iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher and more. If you like this episode, please share it with your friends. If you have stories to share and want to be featured on our podcast, write to us at podcasts at adepticlabs.com.